1: The Sword and the Atto Pen by Taylor H. Greenfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nigel Fisher. The Sword and the Atto Pen by Taylor H. Greenfield. Although divine intervention in human affairs passed into the realm of the mythical toward the end of the twentieth or at the dawn of the twenty-first century, one is almost inclined to give thanks to the supernatural for the marvelous efficacy of dr rutledge's discovery and stratagem which so recently freed us from the oriental menace a year ago only the mississippi and the most severe winter in many generations was staying the complete invasion of the united states In an unbelievably secret manner, our enemies had, for five decades, been developing a scientific offensive against which our laboratories could not in a short interval protect us. The vast and fundamental discoveries made during the past hundred years by the Orientals, and now the heritage of the world, can only be compared to the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century without warning through the discovery of the cause of gravitation the mongols practically lifted their nangsi metal transports which were built of a material combining the lightness of aluminium with the strength and hardness of steel out of the sea and in 5 days skimmed across the surface of the pacific the whole west lay at their mercy though we know with what gallantry their forces were held in check from summer until winter when the enemy had reached the mississippi of course one of the surprises which the Orientals had not counted on was the providential inspiration of Dr. Mernick of the Hopkins, who devised the now famous Murnickian transformer by which light from the sun, received through a series of grates, is stepped from the wavelengths of light into those of electricity. This gave us a sudden limitless source of power on which the enemy had not counted. It virtually lifted our forces off the ground and made them almost the equal of an enemy who had succeeded in neutralizing the gravitational drag the final and most disastrous card our subtle enemies played was dealt on the prairies of nebraska they themselves were afraid of their weapon and wanted plenty of space to try it in i was personally present at its debut being at the time in general sanford's stationary observing helicopter which through the agency of the power supplied by a Mernickian transformer hung motionless as a bee fifteen thousand feet in the air only the treble hum of the air turbine could be heard faintly through the transparent walls of the observatory constructed of the annealed clerosite which had taken the place of the unsatisfactory glass used by our forefathers the toughness and tensile strength of this element comparable to the best chrome steels combined with its crystal clarity made an ideal warfare observation unit it was practically invisible and likewise quite bulletproof. The great strength of the material in our machine, and the rapidity with which we could rise and fall, indeed made us difficult prey. In addition to this, we were hanging behind the great electric field that the Radio Defensive Corps had spread like a screen before our forces, greatly to the embarrassment of the enemy in his use of anti-gravitational machines. As we stood at our posts, we saw the great degravitated bombs, hurled against our lines, suddenly come into contact with the fan-like electric shield, somersault a few times and fall at the edge of the electric screen the ground was excavated to an enormous depth by the bursting of these intercepted degravitational bombs most of which had been projected from stationary batteries three or four hundred miles behind the enemy lines the local batteries bombarding with the old-fashioned Sangsi steel shell were still effective on the whole however from our own observation of the local front and from the television reports we were constantly receiving we judged that the American and allied Caucasian forces were more than holding their own. General Sanford, the chief of the Signal Corps, who stood by my side, grasped my arm and pointed to the west. Everyone crowded to our side in excitement. Before we could grasp our amazement, the incandescent spot, which our chief had mutely indicated on the distant horizon, zoomed in a blazing arc across our zenith, and plunged into the terrain of the English forces which were occupying the little town of Ogalalla about six miles to our south we held our breath what next only a faint throbbing seemed to pulse in the air above the spot where the missile sank i was about to pronounce the diagnosis of a dud when someone cried my god general they've turned hell loose this time the whole atmosphere for a quarter of a mile radius about the bomb quivered as over a heated griddle even as we remarked this the area began to glow cherry red a deafening thunder assaulted our ears when to our horror the earth on which had stood the now-burning town of Ogallala rose a gigantic incandescent ball and shot like a meteor into the heavens. Our car was a feather tossed in the ensuing hurricane, but even while we bobbed back and forth, there was an ear-splitting explosion as the land that was once an American village burst into a blinding blue flare of hydrogen flame twenty-five miles above us. The swaying car gradually subsided in the tortured atmosphere, and a gentle rain began to fall. Ogallala had been chemically stepped down into the most primitive element, combined with oxygen above, and was condensing back to earth again as a few globules of H2O. That day was a sort of crisis. The enemy had discovered and turned upon us the power of atomic degeneration, and I, as the assistant chief chemist of the American Army, felt my heart become heavy within me as I soared back to the central laboratory even as i watched the advent of the electronic detonator two days previously the inspiration had come to me what had happened to the doomed nebraskan town had been so obvious through some unexplained agency discovered by the orientals the electronic restraint of the normally stable elements had been removed in a brief time ogallala had degenerated through all the steps of the periodic table until it became hydrogen at which point, owing to the terrific air current and the incandescent heat, it had recombined with oxygen of the air as simple molecules of water. I thought I had a clue as to how it had been accomplished. The central chemical laboratory was the focus of feverish excitement. The air was tense with the expectancy of tremendous things. Every scientist there felt we were on the verge of discovering the principle of the Mongols' new weapon. Give us time! Time! was the plea we sent daily to the defence headquarters. Only six weeks more, only a month, we begged. And then we'll make a boomerang out of the enemy's invention. Anderson, Mahaffey, Dr. Spritz, all the great physicists and chemists of the present age laboured at my side, endeavouring to trick nature into giving us that saving secret. The television phone called my name. I immediately hurried to the booth and saw General Loomis, the commander-in-chief of the American and Caucasian armies, standing in his helicopter headquarters. He seemed haggard and worn how much longer johnson he asked the enemy has pretty well eaten out the country and with the advent of winter and lack of food are bending all their efforts to crush us besides we cannot tell just how long it will be before they begin turning out their new bomb in other than experimental quantities two weeks i should estimate is all the longer i can hold them if that is the case general loomis i replied we may as well give up two months will see us ready but two weeks i felt a hand laid on my shoulder Dr. Rutledge, my science chief, had stepped into the booth behind me and overheard the conversation. General Loomis, Dr. Rutledge spoke, looking for all the world, like a patriarch of olden times. Until five minutes ago, what Johnson had just said would have sealed our fate. But now, I think, I believe, we have one more card to play. I have only this moment completed a series of reactions, which have resulted, as I calculated they should, in the production of a new protein, similar in appearance to flour, It should, although of course I have not yet had the time to verify this statement, be a practical substitute for flour, and indeed it is my belief that it will easily be mistaken for that substance. Its particles are laminated similar to starch, of an identical size, and the nutritive factor should be greater than that of bread. It is, in short, a new foreign protein never before found in the world of men. "'Very interesting, I'm sure,' replied General Loomis, with a trace of bitterness and sarcasm in his voice your noble efforts will feed the yellow devils an excellent artificial fare they will be grateful i know exactly my object general dr rutledge replied he continued impressively you have until now relied upon me largely in the waging of this war to save the white race from the menace of the yellow since all is lost at any rate grant me one last effort on behalf of my country at all costs loomis hold your present line for two days preparing to suddenly retire to the west bank of the mississippi I leave it to your strategy to make a sudden retreat, which should extend over a period of at least ten days, appear as if enforced by the enemy themselves. "'There should be no difficulty in that direction,' General Loomis interpolated, smiling wryly on the television screen. "'Once on the west bank,' went on Dr Rutledge, seriously, not noticing the introduction, "'make a stand for a day or two, and then suddenly retreat across the river to the east bank, as if again forced to do so. Now, General, two days from this time, before your retreat begins,' I shall, I trust, have your armies all along the lines supplied with my new artificial foreign protein flour. This you will leave in the enemy's hands, which, you have intimated, will be much to their delight. You will do the same at the stand which for a while you held on the west bank, but, mind you, let none of your men use any of this perfectly harmless food. I will personally see to it that you will receive it in such containers that none will come into contact with your persons. Doctor, Loomis said, staring at the old scientist for some time. i'm in astonishment except for years of personal acquaintance i would say that you were suffering a mental shock knowing you as i do however i pray to god you're making no mistake this time i'll do as you wish his figure faded from the screen the next fortnight was one of black despair i myself doubted on occasions whether or not the old doctor was mentally accountable even i who had trusted him so long General Loomis and his staff called up daily to inquire if Dr. Rutledge had any change of plans. As for the Army and the populace, they were one in calling on the President to make terms with the enemy. The Allies truly were on the point of collapse. All that kept up what morale was left in the Chemical Division was the unrelenting demands made on us by Dr. Rutledge to continue to ferret out the electronic detonator. Until then he had scarcely bothered with our work. Now he would hear of nothing else. "'Today's the day!' was the slogan he had dispatched above every bench. Finally the fatal day arrived. The retreat across the Mississippi was consummated. This time it was not feigned. The Mongols were hungry, and their appetites were whetted for more flour such as had sustained them for the past twelve days. Moreover, new electronic bombs were beginning to be supplied to them. My name leapt at me across the room. I was being called by that almost human instrument, the television phone. Both my superior and I hurried to the cabinet. It was, as we had guessed, Loomis. "'It's all up,' he said wretchedly. "'The fresh supply of atomic degenerating bombs for which the enemy has been holding back has now arrived. "'They matched and neutralised our electric field defence screen just an hour ago, leaving us at their mercy. "'You've had your chance, Doctor, and failed. "'I advise you both to make your way north, and wait until these fiends forget the inconvenience you've both caused them. "'As for me, I'm leaving this instant to offer unconditional surrender in the name of the Allies.' It was about ten o'clock in the morning, just after he had transported all his forces hurriedly to the east bank, and as the Mongols were occupying the old entrenchments on the west, that General Loomis closed his conversation with the chemical laboratory. He turned to an aerial officer who stood at attention beside him. "'Major Maniou,' he said, "'trail a white truce-banner on your plane, and tell the enemy I will parley with them. Tell them that we will serve rations presently to our men who have worked all night without food or rest.' and that, if it is agreeable to them, both sides shall simultaneously discontinue activity at one o'clock. At that time I shall cross the river to offer them our terms of surrender. The officer saluted and hastened to his nearby plane. General Loomis ascended into his helicopter to confer with his staff to draw up in documentary form the surrender, and give it the necessary orders relative to lowering of fire that afternoon. He also spoke to the President and to the crowd outside the White House, and then began nervously waiting the crucial moment. About twelve thirty, however, a remarkable fact forced itself on his attention, whereas the Allied batteries continued to thunder away. the fire from the Orientals became irregular and sporadic, celebrating their victory beforehand. The French commander remarked bitterly to his chief, Loomis nodded, and getting careless too. Another of the staff added as he saw one of the enemy's detonator bombs disintegrate three or four hundred acres of a Mongolian base encamped fifty miles to the northwest and shoot it a monstrous blazing rocket twenty or thirty miles into the midday sky. By twelve forty-five the enemy's barrage had fallen completely all along the line. Our battery nevertheless continued until the set time, but elicited no answer. Exactly at one, General Loomis, with two aides, stepped into his air-car. He was a picture of grief and despair. Three minutes late, the party landed forty miles across the river, before the headquarters and armoured dining hall of the Oriental General Staff. Loomis and his officers stepped out of their car and looked about. No one was in sight. Not even a sentry guarded the mess-room door. The general paced back and forth a few minutes in indecision. "'Evidently they mean to make us feel our defeat,' he said. "'They apparently do not even think it further necessary to observe rudimentary diplomatic courtesy. Come on, boys, beggars can't be choosers, as the antique saying goes.' He led the way to the dining-hall, through a window of which a light was seen shining." "'Perhaps if we find his Xanthic Highness after a good meal, "'he will be inclined to be a bit more lenient,' Loomis whispered with a forced laugh, "'trying to cheer his glum companions. "'He opened the unguarded door of the hall. "'An instant later he reeled back, horror-stricken. "'Instead of a feasting gathering of officers "'attached to the Mongolian staff, "'he saw before a feast of men "'contorted in grotesque shapes by some violent death. "'Many lay beside the table, some on it, "'their faces blotched with great unsightly wheels.' Their chests bloated until they seemed about to burst. Only one poor wretch had any life left in him. He lay exhausted on the floor, with great streams of frothy mucus pouring from his nose and throat. A possibility dawned in Loomis's mind. He dashed away to search the other mess tents, shouting to his aides to follow suit. It was, as he guessed, they had landed in a camp of dead and dying, stricken by some mysterious power. Hope surged suddenly back into his soul— He felt dizzy and faint could a similar fate have caused the unaccountable silence of the enemy's cannonade even as the thought came to him he knew it must be so his marvelous old friend dr rutledge had risen to the need of the world and crushed the yellow menace such truly had been the case in a single hour through the agency of a harmless food the subtle scientist had crushed a nation the principle involved had been discovered nearly two centuries before when it was well known that that if an animal were injected with a small quantity of a protein foreign to its body, a subsequent dose of a hundred million times as weak could cause its immediate and violent death. Even the quantity that might be flying in the atmosphere and become dissolved in the fluids of the nose or eyes would act as the most virulent of known poisons. Through the ages, however, the human race had more or less come in contact with all the proteins in their world, and hence rarely became highly sensitised to any protein occurring in nature. The terrible toxicity of a protein which had never before occurred in nature, and to whose power mankind had never even been partially desensitized, had, up to the time of Dr. Rutledge, only entered the minds of a few scientists. His strategy was the working out of a new maxim, Nature is terrible, but man makes it more so. Foreign protein sensitization, or anaphylaxis, was the basis of Dr. Routledge's coup the laws governing this reaction had been worked out more or less by a group of scientists in the twentieth century they had demonstrated that if a guinea pig or rabbit were injected with the blood serum of another species a subsequent dose of an infinitely small quantity of this substance would cause convulsions collapse and rapid death inasmuch as there were as many proteins in the atmosphere at that time due to the unrestrained pollination of plants of every description it was not surprising that they found as many as ten per cent of the white race afflicted with a slight pollen sensitivity which showed up seasonally by causing spasms of the smooth muscle of the respiratory system, a disease popularly called hay fever. Since, however, the proteins of the world had always been present, the human race had, by constantly coming into contact with them, become more or less immunised to the majority. Only occasionally a case of violent sensitivity came to light, and was recognised as such. Two or three cases there had been, which the old scientist discovered while searching the archives of ancient medicine, and these gave him the clue he needed." One was the case of a little girl who had somehow or other become sensitized to the protein of wasp toxin, and who suffered an almost immediate death from the anaphylactic shock as a result of being stung by that insect. A second instance concerned a woman who went into violent asthmatic paroxysms if a mouse entered the room where she was, and whose skin broke out in large wheels if touched with a mouse hair. Finally, and most outstanding in his mind, was the case of a child who was thought to be sensitive to the fish protein in glue, and who died almost immediately when the physician testing her had brought a small quantity of the dry protein into contact with a scratch on her arm. These had, however, been rare cases, but they pointed out the method. It had already been proved over and over again that animals could be sensitized experimentally by treating them with foreign proteins provided that after the initial dose they did not come into contact with the same protein until after a lapse of about two weeks. If they happened to do so, the first injection or treatment was frequently neutralised and failed to give the desired sensitivity. With the discovery of a new highly pure and synthetic protein by Dr Rutledge, the situation with the enemy could be put on a close parallel with the laboratory condition. The enemy could be fed the protein when they were in need of food and had little else, but since it was synthetic they could not get a second supply until the doctor was able to put the fatal meal in their way. The End of The Sword and the Atto Pen by Taylor H. Greenfield, recorded by Nigel Fisher.